0: I am uh, very excited to be uh, presenting this program with um, my illustrious uh, panelists, uh, who I will introduce in a minute. Uh, First of all, I wanted to give you a little bit of context. Uh, In Boston, international arbitration is starting to buzz. Uh, We now have uh, the Boston Bar Association International Law Section. There was an international law section a while ago Um, It uh, fell into disuse, but it has been resurrected, uh, especially in light of the many uh, international and cross-border activities that are going on in our community and in the region. Just a little personal story. uh, I'm not from around here originally. About five or six years ago, I went to the Seaport um, in the Boston area uh, to the uh, Institute of Contemporary Art, which was lovely. About five or six years later, I attempted to go to the uh, art museum again. I came out of the subway at the seaport and I could not find the museum because there were so many uh, buildings uh, that had gone up and corporate headquarters uh, that had uh, decided to relocate to our area. So the international world is growing in Boston and the Boston international law section is part of that. Um, I have on the phone, I believe, Uh, Aditya uh, Parakath and Ted Folkman, uh, the co-chairs of the International Law Section. Uh, Aditya is with Mintz Levin and Ted is um, with Folkman LLC. I also have on the phone um, my good friend and colleague, Jonathan Fitch, uh, who is uh, an international arbitrator extraordinaire around town and the world. Um, And he is my co-chair of the International Dispute Committee of the International Law Section of the Boston Bar Association. I can almost say fast. Uh So um, with that, I'd also like to comment uh, about the, the Boston buzz regarding international arbitration that we have established in the past year or two uh, an entity called the Boston International Arbitration Council. Um, At first, we thought we might want to call it the Boston International Arbitration Society, but that acronym, bias, we felt was inappropriate uh, given our context, so we moved to council. Uh, We had the first International uh, Arbitration Day in Boston. uh, Last, actually it was in February. We got it in just under the wire before uh, COVID-19 hit. Um, There is a new Boston chapter of the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators, which just had its first meeting in the past couple of months. And um, on a broader scope, I am a co-chair of, and I have to say this one fast too, um, the USCID ICC Northeast Subcommittee of the Arbitration Committee of that entity. So um, that is a a regional entity, broader in scope beyond Massachusetts, Connecticut, Delaware, et cetera. But there are just a lot of things going on in in, uh, our area, in New England, in the Northeast. And I'm glad to have my uh, wonderful panelists be a part of that. So, um, I will quickly introduce myself and then I'm going to ask uh, my panelists to introduce themselves. Um, I am a mediator and arbitrator. Uh, I started out in New York, uh, where many of my panelists are based, uh, at, uh, Paul Weiss. I, uh, went in-house to life sciences and healthcare companies and, and lived abroad and elsewhere. And now I've been a full-time neutral since about 2012. Um, I am uh, with JAMS, but I also sit on cases are uh, administered by many other uh, communities and I do about half mediation as well. Uh, so that's me, Let, I'm gonna call on someone. Uh, Mr. Morell, would you could be kind enough to uh, introduce yourself?
1: Sure, thanks, Connor. Uh, so I'm Mark Morell. Uh, I am an independent arbitrator and mediator, mostly arbitrator, uh, based in New York City. Uh, I have a background as a uh, general counsel and corporate counsel uh, prior to that, Uh, and I am from around there. I'm a native Bostonian, Uh, so it's good to be at least virtually home again. I wish I could be with you on Beacon Hill, but I hope that day will come, so thanks very much.
0: How about you, Andrew?
2: Oh, thank you very much, Kana. My name is Andrew Lowenstein. I'm a partner with Foley Hoag here in Boston, where I practice with the International Litigation and Arbitration Department. Um, My practice focuses on a, a spectrum of different types of international disputes, including disputes under public international law before state to state for including the International Court of Justice. And I also do a considerable amount of work in the investment arbitration space, as well as commercial arbitration as well as ancillary proceedings related to arbitration before the federal courts. Um, Perhaps most relevant to the subject matter of today's discussion, I was counsel to Uruguay in an investment arbitration that was brought by Philip Morris to contest Uruguay's public health regulations concerning uh, the regulation of tobacco products. And um, I think we might be seeing um, uh, similar claims um, made in the future in regard to regulatory actions made by states um, in the context of the pandemic.
0: Great. Mr. Fellas.
3: Hi, thank you, Connor. My name is John Fellas. I'm a partner at Hughes Hubbard and Reed in New York and specialize in, in international arbitration. Um, I would say my work is partly sitting as an arbitrator and partly working as counsel in the field. Uh, It's a pleasure to be in Boston, albeit virtually, uh, having lived in the area for four years.
0: Hmm. Terrific, good. um, You'll notice that uh, poor Mr. Lowenstein, Andrew, uh, is uh, playing the practitioner uh, in our program today. Um, uh, Steph and Mark and John are uh, arbitrators, and uh, I think they'll be speaking uh, to our topic in that capacity for the most part. Uh, so we're going to pick on Andrew a little bit, but he'll- he, he, You didn't
1: introduce Steph. Yeah,
0: I was oh, going to say, maybe so. I might just say hello. Oh, <laughs> he said, of course course you should.
4: So I'm, uh, I'm coming to you from another place that starts with B, not Boston, but from Brooklyn. Uh, I'm a Canadian, uh, and I've been here for about 20 years. In fact, I guess it's 20 years ago this month that I graduated from law school, and I've been practicing uh, international arbitration for the entirety of my career. I was at White & Case uh, as counsel for 10 years, and then I've been on my own uh, since, uh, since around 2012 as well um, as an arbitrator, and uh, primarily doing international, as I said, uh, but I also do training for new AAA uh, commercial arbitrators.
0: That's great. My apologies. Um, so now that we are all properly introduced, um, we are gonna pick on Andrew a little bit because uh, he has been at the at the forefront of how users are, are reacting to the world in, in, in which we live. Um, but let me just tick off a couple of introductory points. Um, within the indulgence of the panelists. Uh, sitting as a US uh, lawyer and uh, US general counsel for much of my career, I'm fully aware, and I think the panelists are fully aware that domestically uh, arbitration sometimes has uh, come under significant scrutiny and criticism. But I think in the cross-border world in which we operate, um, the practitioners in the field have accepted uh, the fact that, really, if your choice is between resolving a cross-border dispute um, through a court um, and using international arbitration, that really international arbitration is the only practical way uh, to go about resolving uh, your, your commercial dispute in particular. And the reasons for that are it provides a neutral forum Uh, you don't have to deal with the vagaries of uh, local court proceedings. Um, It is a can be a very flexible process shaped by the parties. Uh, The award is enforceable under the New York Convention. Uh, We could have an entire discussion about that topic. I'm just ticking off some of the accepted advantages here. Um, The process is with some holes. Confidential, that's another uh, thing we could talk a lot about, but we won't um, delve into that here. Let's just accept that for the moment. And the new benefit in today's world is the ability to move forward towards an adjudicated result at all. Uh, Courts are closed. Uh, When they reopen, I think, uh, and we've talked, you know, the panelists have talked about this, uh, criminal cases uh, in the U.S. will receive precedence. Uh, over the resolution of civil cases. uh, And um, dockets will be full, there will be a backlog, even if and when we get back to normal anytime soon, perhaps in 2021. So uh, the advantages for resolving a dispute in an international arbitration setting were accepted pre-COVID and I think there are even more advantages to this type of process now. So the issue that we wanna talk about uh, today, and Mr. Fellas helped us with some of these um, general themes, is, is it possible to preserve these benefits of arbitration um, without suffering unacceptable costs in terms of logistics and efficiency, advocate effectiveness, and due process fairness in a COVID uh, 19 world. Again, logistics and efficiency, the ability of advocates to be effective, and due process and fairness. Um, so, let me get this started by asking Andrew to talk a little bit about pre-COVID. Right, so you're, it's December, all right? It's December, um, and you're in the middle of uh, an arbitration proceeding, an existing case. Uh, what was the usual? What was being done? without in-person contacts and what did you expect the process uh to look like
2: well to, to a certain extent um in the pre-covid world there was already a fair amount of what one could call remote contact or remote involvement uh, in arbitral proceedings um, so for example um, it will be not uncommon to have a, a telephone conference with an arbitral tribunal to discuss mm-hmm. For example, the term terms of reference, um, and to present the party's views with respect to the proposed terms of reference, or with respect to procedural orders, and it was very common to do that remotely um, via a teleconference. I think it would be relatively rare to have had an in-person hearing um, before a tribunal to discuss those sorts of matters. Um, same things with relatively mundane, you know procedural matters that might be implicated during the course of the arbitral proceedings. So for example, if there is a dispute as to the scope of document disclosure, um, that might be the sort of matter um, that would be raised um, before a a tribunal telephonically rather than in person. So I, I think you only really start to see, you know, the major impact of the pandemic Um, Once you get to the more sort of meaty substantive proceedings where you would expect to have in the ordinary course um, a live hearing before the tribunal Mm
0: -hmm. And I also there were calls to make the arbitration process more efficient even pre-COVID 19 right Andrew? we were seeing calls for that sort of uh, uh, discussion. How do we make things quicker, faster, uh, et cetera?
2: That's Um, absolutely right. And and, I mean, historically, um, one of the advantages of arbitration has always been perceived to be its relative flexibility and efficiency, at least compared to some uh, judicial court proceedings. I, I think there's been some concern in recent years that that sort of efficiency may have been lost at least in some proceedings. And there's been uh, calls and efforts to um, make the proceedings um, more efficient. And, and so um, one of the ways that that can be accomplished is through telephonic conferences with the tribunal.
0: How about um, uh, the arbitrators? Uh, Ms. Cohen, since I uh, absolutely forgot to uh, give you a chance to introduce yourself, I'm going to uh, uh, permit you to uh, speak first <laughs> on the topic of what was it, what was normal? You know, if, if you were uh, a presiding arbitrator, for example, in, in an existing case back in December, um, is what Andrew talked about as the, the, the usual pre COVID uh, 19 process, does uh, that sound familiar to you? What was your experience?
4: yeah i I mean i think that i think the way andrew summarized it is right is um we've had uh tools like video conferencing available for a long time but they tend to be something that that we would have used if we had to if a witness suddenly wasn't able to travel um or was a you know we needed to sort of um make a, a flexible and creative plan uh to go forward but um but certainly not the norm um, the one thing I'd add, I guess, to Andrew's summary is that there are also other techniques that are available to us to sort of respond to the faster, uh, quicker um, calls for action, um, but they tend to be underutilized. So, for example, um, questions about whether we can be deciding more things by, by summary disposition, resolving things on a preliminary basis. There are you know, issues that arbitrators readily, I think, identify and resolve like a statute of limitations issue or a jurisdiction issue, but rarely um, do, uh, do people, I think, delve into them in, in greater detail about how we can take advantage of some of those kinds of techniques. Some of those questions are coming up more now, but whether there are other things we should be doing besides just switching our hearings virtually to respond to uh, the COVID-19 crisis and to sort of pivot a little bit.
0: Right, thank you, thank you. Um, uh, John or, or Mark, did you have anything to add on what was normal in your practice uh, as arbitrators?
1: Um, I, I would just say to, along the same lines that hearings you know, are one event, now they're the great pinnacle event, but one event in a very long continuum of what the arbitration process is. So there's a lot of pre-hearing activity that is, as Andrew said, rarely carried out in person. I think in the future, we'll see a lot more of it on video conference rather than regular uh, telephone conference calls. But there's a lot of case management, management of discovery slash disclosure, uh, sometimes uh, pre-hearing motions, although rare as Stephanie noted, Uh, And then a lot happens after the hearing. There's uh, post-hearing argument, which is sometimes separated from the hearing. There's deliberations, there are cost applications, award writing, so it's a very
3: big continuum.
0: Right. Um, John, did you have anything to add on on this point?
3: No, I'm just gonna repeat what everyone else said, so I'll (laughs) I'll say nothing.
0: (laughs) All right. Um, So then, Andrew, It's March or April or maybe May and something is happening that is different from the the situation in December to put it mildly. So again maybe you can lead us off. Once it became apparent that there were going to be lockdowns and courts were closed and uh, uh, in-person methods hearings were just Not going to be possible for a long time and all of this is of course uncertain and we'll talk about this Um, What were your initial sort of first wave of responses as a firm and just thinking as a a Litigator
2: so I I Tend to notice have noticed that there were, were really two different waves of 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 questions that had to be considered um, the first wave really arrived as it became apparent that something very serious um, was happening. Uh, and, and those questions mostly concerned what to do about um, scheduled events that were scheduled to take place in the relative near term. So within the next, say, two months, including you know, deadlines for pleadings, um, and the scheduled hearings, uh, when it became apparent that you know, really, one could not just operate in the normal course, um, and this was true, I think, you know, both for counsel and I've talked to counsel all over the world, and this was a uh, commonality that everyone faced: is is just you couldn't really operate, um, or it's at least much more challenging to operate the way one ordinarily did. Um, but also, I think it's fair to say that. Um, uh, the, the, the users, the clients, um, you know, entity, corporate entities um, have the same logistical constraints. Um, access to files, um, access to, to records, um, people were working from home and that presents logistical challenges. And, and so the first set of issues that I think many people had to grapple with is what to do about um, deadlines that were coming up in the, in the near term. Um, and, and I think for the most part, um, many of those deadlines were, um, by agreement, um, extended. Um, but what's happened now is, is we're, we're reaching a, a, a second wave of questions, which concerned, um, okay, we've decided to postpone the hearing from, say, April until a date that we all thought was, you know, <clears throat> millennia away, September. <laughs> um, Well, it turns out really September is actually not that far away and and the world in September doesn't look all that different than the world looked in April. In fact, it may even be worse in September than it was in April. So um, for hearings that are now inevitable to take place um, in the relative short term, um, what will those hearings look like? Will they be done in person? If so, how? Will they be done remotely? If so, how? And so a a whole set of logistical questions uh, have arisen as to the the sort of logistical constraints and and modalities by which those types of hearings will take place.
0: John, if I could ask you to uh, talk a little bit about, as a sitting arbitrator, what you're hearing from parties, what you're hearing from your fellow arbitrators about these first and second wave questions. And and just for the um, benefit of the participants, we'll be getting into more of the details about remote hearings uh, in in a minute. Um, But just in general, wanted to talk a little bit about what the reaction has been uh, from the arbitrator's perspective.
3: Um, What what I have seen, um, my experience has actually been very similar to Andrew's Uh, uh, and you know, I think it's important to distinguish pre-hearing activities from the hearing itself with respect to pre-hearing activities, the deadline for a filing of a pleading, the deadline for the filing of the discovery dispute. Um, in some cases, there's been a request for an extension, in other cases uh, uh, agreed to by both parties, in other cases actually parties have been able to just get on with it um, and meet, meet pre-existing deadlines um, uh, That were prior to um, uh, COVID. Um, hearings have been a different story. And uh, as, as Andrew said, uh, it's everything. I mean, I was in principle had two hearings in June. Uh, in principle, uh, uh, everything got pushed off till September on the theory that when we were making these decisions back in April and May, so September uh, seemed like a long way away. You know, it's unclear to me even now whether hearings can go forward in September, Um, you know, I have hearings in London in September. Um, (laughs) uh, You know, it it is unclear whether London is even going to, England is even going to allow people to come from the United States. Uh, You know, I think right now, if if any, my understanding, if anyone travels to England, uh, anyone, uh, they have to quarantine for 14 days before they're allowed to do anything. So, you know, putting aside the the risk, you know, the, people's appetite for risk is also just um, restriction. So, you know, I, I don't know what's going to happen. And obviously there are, you know, different ideas thrown around. You know, it's very easy if arbitrators rule in the same city. Um, you know, one 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 thing I have heard uh, mooted in one case I'm with is that all three arbitrators get together in the same room, uh, in a big enough room so they can socially distance uh, and see the testimony on video. Um, so they will be there in person, you know, together uh, and able therefore to discuss the case and react in real time with each other. And not. Uh, I, but I have another case um, where uh, one of my which involves hearings in March. Now this is March 2021. And it's still quite a long way away. Where one of the co-arbitrators wrote to me and my fellow co-arbitrator. I'm, I'm not the chair. It was uh, it was a co-arbitrator rather than the chair who wrote. Who and he, he said, um, look, I don't think there will be a vaccine by March. Should we now raise with the parties the question of going? virtually, of doing this virtually. Now that raises a whole host of issues. Um, And and one of them is a fundamental one. Is the test now for whether you're going to go forward live the existence of a vaccine? Uh, It it may never come. (laughs) Um, As as optimistic as Dr. Fauci might be, it may never come from what I've read. Um, And You know, it can't be the test for everybody because people have different appetites for risk. Some people are happy to do dangerous sports. Uh, Some people are in risky groups, um, you know, may have a pre-existing condition. Um, But it it, it does raise questions, you know, should an arbitrator who feels that he or she can't attend a hearing in person just feels it's not safe enough for them, should they resign? Um, Is it now legitimate to start asking arbitrators before you appoint them what is your view on attending live hearings? Um, is it your view that you can only attend when there's a vaccine? Because if, if that's your view, I am not sure that I want to appoint you for a, a, a case where you have to travel. And, and so I think, you know, I don't know the answer to any of these questions. Um, because, you know, as I think as Andrew pointed out, and I think as we all believe, we all thought at some point by the fall we'll be done with this and can move on. And I think that's not what's going to happen, um, but how it will play out, I think no one knows.
0: Steph, I think you uh, were interested in commenting on some of the things John was saying.
4: So um, I guess a couple of things. One is, uh, yeah, most of my hearings rescheduled um, and even September hearings are being, being rescheduled. Um, but I have had hearings go forward virtually um, and we're gonna get into the question about what you do when the parties don't agree. Um, And I I just did a 10 day, had a 10 day uh, hearing that was over the objection of one of the parties. Um, So we'll get into that kind of circumstance. But I think one of the differences that we're confronting now between Andrew's first wave and second wave is in the first wave, we were all confronted very suddenly out of necessity with a need to pivot right away. Do we go forward? Do we, do we do things virtually? In which case can we get the arrangements together quickly? How do we do this? Now we're in a situation where we're looking a little bit further ahead and starting to realize uh, you know those uh, September-October hearings are not that far away and uh, there it may not be that realistic to have things in person and uh, even if we want to there may be last-minute changes all of a sudden because people aren't allowed to fly. Uh, because they have a temperature when they go to, to board the plane, and so I think the big question that I'm finding in a lot of my cases now is when is the right moment to raise contingency plans with the parties? And in a in a brand new case, I think it becomes a topic for conversation just to see what people are thinking right off the bat. In a case where, as John says, you know, maybe a co-arbitrator sends him an email. Um, I think there's there's some strategy there involved in what the right time is to raise it and whether you, as an arbitrator, whether I wait for counsel to raise it, mm. or whether, you know, we want to do it proactively as a tribunal. Um, and some of that turns on things like whether there's a big filing coming up. I don't necessarily want to start talking about contingency plans a week before someone's supposed to put in a major submission, if I think that might create opportunities for delay and sort of you know change the situation between the parties. So I think there are still some tough questions about how and when we raise the questions about uh, contingency plans, and that that's one of the biggest things that we're confronting. Um, and then as, as John sort of alluded to, and I, and I think Andrew as well, that we're mostly gonna be dealing with hybrid hearings probably. Um, some people can get together Maybe not others, uh, whether it's because of formal travel restrictions or just sort of last minute need to, to shift plans. So it's a little bit different than the, co- the initial wave where we were thinking everybody's participating in a hearing from their house. Uh,
0: yes. and,
4: and everybody's from a different endpoint.
0: Mark, go ahead.
1: I uh, just one, one quick comment on, on a point Steph touched on briefly. For reasons that I don't understand, but I've seen it and I know others have seen it, there seems to be a big difference between new cases and cases that were pending. In new cases, um, I have seen a lot more flexibility about agreeing to virtual hearings or agreeing to give the arbitrator discretion to make a determination at the time of hearing. Uh, the the issues for some reason seem more complex. People seem more rattled about their existing cases. Uh, it may be that in the new cases, people are just starting out on the landscape that over the last few months has become familiar to us, but I'm, I don't have any reasoned explanation for that, but it's a trend that I've seen and others have commented on it as well.
0: Interesting. Well. Talking about new uh, disputes, I wanted to invite uh, Andrew and Mark uh, to talk a little bit about what are parties um, doing if they aren't uh, in the middle of an arbitration process? Uh, Are you seeing an increased willingness to uh, negotiate a resolution or to engage in a mediation process? So let me ask Andrew and then I'll turn it over to Mark.
2: Well, I I think, one thing that i've heard from a number of sources um, and this is borne out by my own experience i think that there there well there, there appears to be an increased interest in mediation um and I, I it's difficult to put your finger exactly on why but i think one could surmise that in times of great uncertainty there is a desire to reduce the uncertainty of those things, which one can have some semblance of control over. Um, and so that may affect the willingness or interests of parties to engage in mediation. So I've, I've heard from a number of, of sources that um, there is a decided uptick in interest in at least exploring the possibility of mediation. Obviously, there there are plenty of other instances where there's zero appetite um, for uh, mediation, um, but I, I think in 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 others, some entities may be more willing to explore the possibility than they otherwise would be in light of the circumstances we find ourselves in.
0: Right. How about you, Mark? Are you seeing an uptick a tick in your mediation practice?
1: I'm. Uh, um- I'm not seeing an offering from arbitration to mediation. I'm seeing a very large uptick in mediation in general. Uh, I try to manage the amount of mediation that I do. In the last month, I have been approached about more mediations than I usually do in a year. Very large commercial cases uh, that are in early stage disputes. So there's definitely a big uptick. I think uh, you know, parties are realizing that, that mediation may be one of the few things that's, that's readily available, works very well in the virtual world. And I think there's also a phenomenon of what you saw in the oil patch during the times of big crises, that both sides may feel that, that there's, there are reasons not to litigate, including Uh, that there may not be anything at the end of the process. Uh, So, definite large uptick in mediation.
0: Right, well, yes, and I think Andrew's point um, about it being one way to achieve certainty. (laughs) A a settlement under your control is, is, I guess, appealing too.
1: I I think Um, another trend that we may see accelerate is interest in mixed mode hmm. dispute resolution. So combinations of arbitration, mediation, sequentially, simultaneously. Uh, a lot of groups have been looking at that. Generally, the ICC now has a task force on it. Uh, there's a task force of the College of Commercial Arbitrators uh, that, and Pepperdine Law School that's been around for a few years. Uh, and the feedback from users in this very large uh, survey, worldwide survey that was done a couple of years ago was that users are very interested in just moving forward with those kinds of processes, understanding that there are risks involved of confidential information spilling over. They still want that efficiency. They want that smoother glide path to a resolution.
2: And, and just to pick up on, on that point, w- one of the very attractive things about um, mediation arbitration is that the parties have tremendous flexibility in crafting their own dispute resolution clauses. And so for those that are currently engaged in contractual drafting, they can take advantage of their knowledge of the current situation and to draft a dispute resolution clause that fits their own particular needs.
0: That's a very good point. Thank you. Um, So, I just wanted to briefly acknowledge before, I'm gonna sort of take us into uh, a little bit more focus on um, the hearing and the importance of a a hearing and what that looks like. Um, But I just wanted to briefly acknowledge that in response to uh, the COVID-19, all of the providers um, and many experts in our field have stepped forward with helpful uh, guidelines and uh, principles and flexible procedures Uh, to help parties stay in the arbitration game uh, in this new world. And I circulated um, a couple of things uh, to the participants. One, uh, Steph put together a widely uh, uh, respected and used um, draft Zoom arbitration order, and I'm going to ask her to talk a little bit about that um, in in a minute. Um, If you go to the New York International Arbitration Center's website. They put out, a, an, a, I think it's a weekly uh, post about international arbitration events going on around uh, town, uh, and not just New York, but elsewhere. And they their opening um, uh, gambit is a list of all of the uh, coronavirus resources available. Uh, I circulated also the ICC guidance on uh, arbitration in uh, uh, response to the pandemic. It's quite detailed. That, and JAMS and CPR and the AAA and ICDR and many of the international um, Institutions have put out very helpful um, Resources uh, and stuff also let me uh, know that there's a, a new website that collates a lot of the virtual uh, Arbitration materials that are out there um, and we can circulate that but it's a uh, virtual arbitration info Uh, If you're interested in that, uh, I I can have uh, the Bar Association circulate that to all of the um, participants. So there's lots of thinking about this out there and lots of uh, ways uh, to uh, approach these issues. But John, is it still important for us to have a hearing? Why not adopt the civil law approach of documents only? Is it really critical in international arbitration to have a hearing, be it virtual
3: or in-person? Well, I, I, let me begin by answering the question uh, by, by saying, um, you know, while we've seen uh, more focus on mediation, I have not heard anybody, in any case I'm involved with, say, let's dispense with the hearing. Um, I, I think uh, hearings are, are, are actually critical to international arbitration. And I think, you know, it raises two questions. You know, can you do without them and um, and if you need them are virtual hearings a reasonable substitute but let me just I think you asked me the first of those two questions yeah. so let me talk about that the, the people who say you should I, I've heard it from two sources two disparate sources actually um, that you can dispense with hearings uh, one is somebody people who are experienced in US litigation and say well look we have summary judgment in U.S. litigation, Um, why can't we have the equivalent in international arbitration? Uh, Especially in fact in international arbitration where you get a substantial amount of material in advance typically. I mean the typical practice in international arbitration is that the parties will put in the direct testimony of their witnesses in writing in advance of the case. Um, So you have so much information Surely you can do an equivalent of a summary judgment um, Motion there and and let me just sort of pause by saying, you know, I agree with what Stephanie said There are going to be discrete issues sometimes that you can resolve on papers alone Um, statute of limitations jurisdiction, although statute of limitations i've actually never had come up in a case ever, um, where it was resolved on the papers alone. And jurisdiction, um, my experience is mixed. Sometimes they are folded into the merits, actually. I would say about half the time they're folded into the merits, that you can't resolve the jurisdictional objection. Uh, without actually considering the merits of the case. Um, I mean, for example, this may be in a case involving a non-signatory where a non-signatory has a um, an objection. Much of it depends on how involved the non-signatory was in the underlying transaction that is the subject of the dispute, something you won't be able to resolve until you've heard all the evidence. Um, but, but the... so that's... anyway, back to the point. First school I've heard is those who uh, who are experienced of litigation? They say you have summary judgment. Why can't you do it in international arbitration? The other is civilian lawyers, civil law lawyers, uh, civil law arbitrators, um, who say I I can always resolve a document uh, a case on the documents alone. I don't need to hear witnesses, and that's partly because in the civil law tradition, um, much more emphasis is put on the documents than in in uh, the common law tradition. And so actually as a matter of their own litigation practice, they are used to resolving disputes without hearing much of any witness testimony. Um, I, I disagree with both those schools of thought. Um, and, and on the summary judgment, there is a huge difference between summary judgment and international, arbit- summary judgment, and U.S. litigation and international arbitration. And that huge difference is the amount of discovery you get. Uh, In in, in U.S. litigation, after discovery is conducted, you know, the theory is, and I think it's often borne out in practice, all the facts are out there. You know, they're in the documents, they're in the deposition transcript, they're in, they can be added by affidavit, Um, they're out there and all you need to do is marshal them and present them to a court with some argument about the law and the, the facts are undis- if the facts are undisputed, then the court can decide. There's nothing more that's gonna come out of trial because you've already pinned somebody down at the deposition. You don't have that in international arbitration. You don't have depositions, almost never. Um, the only cases I've ever seen them is, you know the, you have the sick witness, you need a deposition, or both parties agree, which sometimes happen, then you have a deposition. But other than that, um, they, they are extremely rare, um, and so you don't have that. And what you have instead is actually witness statements that are prepared by the lawyers to carefully paper over <laughs> the cracks in the case. And so, uh, you know, I have seen many cases where, um, you know, the hearings made a real difference, which brings me to the second point, uh, you know, the, 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 to my response to the civil law arbitrator who says, you don't need hearings. Um, I I actually don't believe them when they say that. I don't believe them in this sense. Are they really saying, when they say, and I've heard many civil law arbitrators say this, they don't need hearings, that they knew based on the papers, the precise outcome on every claim, on every issue, on the amount of damages to a dollar figure, on the amount of interest, on the date when that interest was going to run. They knew all that just from the papers and nothing that happened in a hearing ever changed their mind. I don't believe, I don't believe that's the case. I, I think um, you learn things at hearings that you may not even have thought about when you look at just the documents alone. But, but my second point is that on, on this issue, is I have had enough experience of, of sitting as an arbitrator and having a preliminary view of the case based on the papers that I've read in advance, and then going into the hearings And having my view changed 180 degrees, Mm -hmm. going in thinking it should come out one way and coming out thinking it it does come out the other way. And and that has happened to me enough times that I think hearings are indispensable. And and the reality is you don't know in advance which case you're dealing with, whether you're dealing with the case where the hearings confirm what you thought you already knew or where the hearings are going to change your mind dramatically. Mm -hmm. Let me stop.
0: Well, no, that's interesting. Uh, Steph, please.
4: So, just I, I think there is a, a distinction to be drawn between um, some of the smaller cases and some of the more complex ones. I agree fully with with what John has said on um, most of the disputes that I end up handling. Um, they're much more involved. But I, the first cases I had were, you know, a hundred thousand dollar disputes, two hundred thousand dollar disputes. So there's a fair amount of international arbitration. Um, that happens in the context of those smaller uh, cases. And, and you can argue about what the right threshold is. Maybe it's a million dollars uh, for some people, but depending on the nature of the case, there are some cases that I do think lend themselves to being decided on the documents. And sometimes that's a business decision that, uh, that parties make that they want to have things decided, decided on the documents because it just doesn't make sense to spend the money on a hearing. Right. But um, so, and I've seen those
3: kinds of instances. So is that where both parties agree, Stephanie? I mean, or, or is... so,
4: so, John, that's a great... Because one of the things that I found in, in those early kinds of cases is that there are instances where, where I would look at something and say, there, you know, this is a letter of credit issue. There, there aren't a lot of, um, you know, factual issues here. And it's mostly a couple of points of contract interpretation that they disagree about. Um, and this seems to me like something that sh- can and should be decided on the documents and the parties don't agree. And in that instance, the one thing that I found helpful is to set a deadline after the exchange of an initial round of submissions for the, par- for the parties to say, yes, we do wanna to proceed to a hearing um, or for me to say, I think we wanna to proceed to a hearing because counsel is often not willing in those instances where it does seem like it's appropriate um, to proceed on the documents to give up the chance of a hearing and people are scared they don't know what's going to happen and i think there's much more of that in the when you have u.s parties than you have parties say from europe in that kind of circumstance but i have had success john in that instance where there's an initial disagreement and after an exchange of reliant the documents people are relying upon and initial arguments on the contract where then the parties have agreed, okay, we can have oral submissions, you know, which we did over the telephone, uh, but we don't need to have everybody fly around the world uh, given the amount in dispute and the issues that have been raised to have, to have a hearing.
0: Yeah. Yes, Mark. And um, then I'm going to ask you to take us into, um, after you uh, comment on this, um, I think it's time to talk about, okay, we need, we, the parties have agreed that they want or need a hearing of some sort. And does an arbitrator or an arbitration panel have the authority to to order one over an objection of one party or both parties? But first, um, Mark, your comment on
1: uh, this. those things. Um, I just want to say I I don't think I agree that the breakpoint about a hearing is very much the size of the matter. Um, I think that there are a lot of small cases that people feel very strongly about. Um, and they want their hearing, and I think, you know, you're not in this group of panelists going to hear any of us say that we don't think hearings are important, you know, that's our culture, that's what we grew up in, and, uh, you know, being as objective as I can be, given my own background, it seems to me that hearings are inescapably a very important part of the process. It's the time when everybody's attention is focused. In ordinary times, you have three panel members together who are, their own relationships are forming or expanding and they're paying attention to the case, they're making preliminary assessments, they're discussing it uh, along the way while still keeping their minds open. I very much agree with John that people do work very hard to to keep an open mind and people do change their mind uh, in the discourse and in the deliberation none of that happens without the centerpiece being a hearing. Um, So I, I, you know, I think they're very important, which is not to say I haven't been to lots of hearings where I try to mask it, but what's really going on is I'm I'm rolling my eyes and saying, this is is a waste of time. Um, But it's still, it's an important event in the process. Uh, so coming to the, to the second question you asked, um, what happens uh, in our current era if uh, parties don't agree on whether a hearings should go forward uh, virtually, uh, which is at least in the moment the only way they're going forward? Um, if you look at the rules, virtually all of the rules give a lot of authority to arbitrators to make every procedural decision, including the way in which testimony is taken. Uh, Some of them, for example, the AAA rule, commercial rule 32, gives express authority to the arbitrators to allow for the presentation of evidence by alternative means. Uh, CPR rules say that the tribunal may conduct the arbitration in such manner as it deems appropriate. The ICC is about to amend its rule uh, to specifically say that hearings can be conducted by video conference. Uh, They've already interpreted their rule, uh, which says that if any party requests a hearing, it has to go forward uh, to say, that doesn't mean it has to go forward in person. There's been a very, as a side note, been a very interesting issue in the ICC and what I just said was in English, the other language versions of the ICC rules don't seem to have that in-person commentation in the first place, but they are in July going to amend their rule uh, to take out anything. That being said, um, I think you very rapidly begin to bump up against fair process and due process issues. Uh, so in a situation where uh, both parties agree that they want a live hearing. Uh, I think it's very hard for an arbitrator or an arbitration tribunal to say, I don't care what you think, uh, we're going forward with a virtual hearing. I, I think that day could conceivably come, but it's it's not now or I think foreseeable. Uh, in a situation where the parties are in disagreement, I think there've been quite a few orders already ordering virtual hearings to go forward Uh, in that situation I think it's very important for arbitration tribunals both to say and to implement that that will be done in a way that ensures the parties are treated equally and that everybody has a fair opportunity to present their claims and defenses and you may actually have to fulfill that you may get to the end of a virtual proceeding and decide that it just, it just wasn't enough, and I'm, I think we're going to talk more about those procedures. Right. Um, but I think, you know, I think there is authority to go forward over the objection of one party, and I think that's very important.
0: Right. So, uh, Steph, have you had experience with uh, this type of argument?
4: I, I have, and I'd say that the one, you know, the one thing I'd add to Mark's sort of overview of the authority issue is that... Um, one issue i know has been popping up and that i've dealt with is uh where an arbitration clause uh has language in it um, that could be construed to mean that the parties had agreed to have a physical uh Mm -hmm. hearing so the arbitration shall take place in paris what does that mean or shall be held in paris does that mean that the parties uh intended to exclude the possibility of proceeding Um, by by video conference or were they agreeing that the place of arbitration or seat of arbitration um, would be Paris? If the tribunal decides to, you know, hold the arbitration by video conference, but make sure that it's within the time zone of Paris uh, and possibly even set up by a third party service provider in Paris, would that satisfy the arbitration clause? So those are some issues and some workarounds that I know tribunals um, are, are dealing with. But that, I think, is one of the things that's coming up on the authority issue. Mm-hmm. Um, there don't seem to be issues in the arbitration law and mandatory laws around the world where this seems to pose a problem. I certainly haven't heard of any to date. So I think as Mark sort of explained it, the bigger issue is not so much can I order a, a hearing but should i order a hearing and i think on the should i order a hearing you absolutely have to look at everything um each case on its on its facts um because they are going to be very different circumstances on what makes sense but the the questions mark pointed to i think are the right ones which are you know will the video hearing allow a fair uh an equal opportunity to the parties to present their cases um is it reasonable to proceed with a virtual hearing because postponement lead to excessive delay and prejudice. Mm -hmm. And I think the last one is really to the extent that there are uh, practical or technical concerns that get raised can reasonable steps to be taken to mitigate those specific concerns. So in in some instances, there might be someone saying we're dealing with an interpreter and it's too hard to do that over video, or um, I don't have the same level of resources and taking those objections one by one and and what's specific to a case, I think is something that tribunals have to look at and think, is this something that makes it unfair to proceed? Is it reasonable to proceed? Or are there workarounds and steps we can take to mitigate those concerns? And so that becomes then a separate set where then we have to talk about all the logistics and how we're gonna organize it. But can you proceed, should I proceed is really the the big question I
0: think. Um, and then I'm going to come back to you. I want John to have a, a chance to jump in here, but I'm going to come back to you, Steph, and ask you to start talking uh, in a somewhat granular way about some of those uh, steps and some of the issues you highlighted in your uh, Zoom arbitration order. But, John, go ahead.
3: Well, I, I think I was really just going to, you know, echo <laughs> what both um, Steph and Mark said, but, I, you know, with a, with a slight twist. I, you know, I think we all... And, and I think Steph, Steph and Mark would agree. You know, one of the things as arbitrators we have to do is we, we have to be sure that the award we issue is enforceable. Um, and so, you know, all of this, all of this implicates that. Uh, you know, and I, I absolutely agree with Mark um, that if both parties don't agree to go forward, uh, you can't order it over the objection of the parties. Why? Because <laughs> under Article 5D of the New York Convention, Um, an award, uh, a a court can refuse to enforce an award if it doesn't follow the procedure agreed to by the parties. If the both parties say we want a live hearing and you as the arbitrator say no, you risk, you at least risk um, a court saying, well, I, you know, both, you're not following the procedure agreed to by the parties. You know, I think in the case of, it was an interesting case you brought up, um, or example you brought up, Steph, because I haven't had that argument made before me yet, um, as to, uh, you know, the clause says the, hit, the arbitration shall take place in Paris. Um, because arguably, if you depart from that, whatever that means, uh, you're not following the, the procedure agreed to by the parties. It seems doubtful to me that a sensible court anywhere would refuse to enforce an award simply because you heard, held a virtual hearing, uh, absent more, absent, absent some argument that this deprived you of a a fair opportunity to present the case or or led to an unequal uh, procedure where one side um, had had an advantage over the other.
1: I think it's important to come back to Andrew's earlier point though, that the advantages of arbitration as being uh, faster, cheaper. Uh, There is an obligation in the rules and really the, the culture of the arbitration process Uh, which is that disputes are supposed to be resolved expeditiously and efficiently. And, and, you know, as we go on in this world and everybody, all the participants and the arbitrators and the institutions are learning things every day that change their views, but that independent obligation to resolve the dispute expeditiously is there. And I think it's going to become more important uh, over time. You know, we're not like courts where you can just say, well, let that just sit on the inactive docket for 10 years. I think that's not the culture of arbitration.
0: Right, that's true. Um, You know, I did want, um, before we jumped into talking about uh, the uh, many issues that come up in in a remote hearing situation along the lines of what Steph was uh, starting to talk about, um, Mark, if you could just uh, say a little bit about um, the... Increased need for attention to cybersecurity. Just a, a, a little bit. I'm going to hold up something here. Um, both uh, Steph Cohen and uh, uh, Mark Morell were the New York Bar representatives. This is probably backwards on the screen. Um, uh, New York City Bar representatives in the working group that put together the terrific ICCA NYC Bar CPR protocol on cybersecurity and international arbitration that came out. This was pre-COVID. Um, but how prescient you both were to uh, be focusing on on that topic. So if Mark, uh, if you could just start us out uh, with a a few points on that and then um, hand it over to Steph who will uh, comment uh, on that general topic and then take us into some of the granular concerns uh, regarding a remote hearing.
1: Sure. I I won't spend a lot of time on it because we have a lot to cover, but Obviously, cybersecurity is more important now than ever and it's been important for a long time as we've been increasingly reliant on technology. There have been some widely publicized breaches that I'm sure everybody on this webinar has heard about. Uh, Now that we're working remotely, people are working on their personal networks, on personal devices. Uh, There's even more risk. It's true, sad, but true that bad actors like bad times. Uh, So uh, some of them see this as an opportunity. Uh, The good news is that there's a lot of guidance available. So the booklet that that Kana just held up, which is the ICA New York City Bar CPR cybersecurity protocol, has a lot of very specific guidance in it. And even as we move into this world of virtual proceedings, uh, The approach that we followed, we weren't certainly contemplating this kind of event, but it turns out that it fits very well. Uh, It's a framework approach that starts with a risk assessment. So as you assess the risk in your case, and this is principle six of that document, uh, that may form your views as to even the video conference platform that you want to choose may inform you a lot about the process that you want to uh, follow. Uh, The protocol gives you guidance on baseline security practices that everybody should follow. Very important stuff as you're all working at home with 11 year olds and spouses and everybody else in the background. Uh, There are some very important considerations there uh, and then it also gives you a toolkit of, of resources, reasonable measures that can be employed, uh, and a lot of process guidance. So other than just nodding that that resource is there, and I commend it to you, I think that's probably enough for this purpose. great.
0: And that was circulated um, to the participants um, uh, in, in this uh, discussion. So uh, Steph, I'm, I'm gonna ask you to start taking us through um, the parts of this discussion that get into, okay, we're at uh, a remote hearing, um, the parties have agreed, or one party has been ordered to go over their objection uh, to a remote hearing. Um, in terms of preparation and thinking about technology and some of the granular issues that you really need to uh, think about that you didn't have to think about when you could just show up in a conference room somewhere in Japan, um, Uh, why don't you highlight some of the things that uh, you think are particularly important uh, given your terrific thinking on this topic?
4: So um, back in March I had to um, pivot from a a hearing that was supposed to take place in person to one that was going to be virtual Uh, and ultimately it settled Uh, but at the time all of the guidance that uh, exists now wasn't there and so i I was looking at what was going to be a, a tribunal hearing and thinking about how do we how do we put this together how do we have the conversation with the parties, and the, the draft um, order that uh, that was circulated with the materials um, is something that I put together after um, going through the process of of doing a deep dive uh, with with Zoom uh, to figure out how to how to use it and how to sort of try and replicate replicate what we're used to with an in-person hearing uh, online and thinking about some of the security considerations that that Mark just talked about um, and how you weave those together with the ordinary evidentiary process. Um, So rather than going through that in in detail, I'd invite you to take a look at it. And what I just would, would do is by way of overview is to sort of tell you how I approach that, and how I approach am approaching things going forward. Um, I've yeah. certainly found different versions of that order now, but the core is the core is the same. Um, and I think that the what's useful to do, whether you're a counsel or arbitrator, is to really think about the considerations that are unique to a virtual hearing. And and how you integrate them with the issues that you would ordinarily consider with respect to the conduct of an in-person hearing. And when you do it that way, I think the technology becomes significantly less overwhelming um, because the same issues that you have to think about in connection with a virtual hearing are there. There's just a couple of add-ons and tweaks. So you're always gonna think about uh, hearing attendees, witnesses, documents, uh, and, how you're going to communicate with your with your team. Um, I think adding on to that, you have to have a technical support and a protocol in the event that something goes wrong. But that, that's sort of the core issues that you end up thinking about. Um, in the hearing order that I put together, what I did is I took a, a pre-hearing checklist that I usually circulate to parties um, beforehand to say, you know, what time are we going to start? The hearing. Who's going to attend? Is there going to be sequestration of witnesses? How do you plan to share documents, um, you know, exhibits during the case? All of those same issues that I would have to uh, create rules on in conjunction for how the hearing is going to be conducted, but tie them into um, what is unique about the virtual process. And so the order flags those things where I think the platform, the video conferencing platform gives rise to um, potential concerns about fairness or integrity of the proceedings or uh, incorporates a default uh, setting um, that everybody should be aware of. Um, And those instances where the platform um, gives you choices that you can make, where there there might be reasonable differences of opinion about them, um, but that they can have an impact on, on the fairness integrity of proceedings. So for example, um, whether you will make use of built-in recording or whether you will have things transcribed automatically using a video conferencing platform, that's something you can do. Is it something that you should do? Is it something that gives rise to some security concerns? Absolutely. So that's the kind of issue where we ordinarily, in the ordinary course, we talk about whether there's going to to be a stenographer. We talk about how costs are going to be shared. We talk about whether there's going to be real time transcript. The add on is how are things a little bit different with, with the virtual platform, but the same kind of question is the same. And I think if you approach things that way, um, as I said, it, it really does become less overwhelming. And I think it helps to make sure that you're not missing any issues. Um, one of the big things that I think is, um, different, uh, in the, in the virtual context is not just the the, bat, the need for a backup plan, but whether we, you will use a third party service provider to begin with. One of the questions that I think arbitrators and counsel are being confronted with and, uh, is, can I handle this on my own, uh, using zoom, or do we want someone in the background who's going to handle it for us? And what are the costs? involved and, and how do you make those decisions? And that's a huge decision to decide beyond using what the platform is, how are we gonna manage it? Um, and I think the considerations around that um, really depend on a number of things. The, one of the biggest ones is what everybody's comfort level is. Um, as a tribunal, uh, if you have a lot of participants involved and it's, you know, it doesn't have to be that big a, big a case, all of a sudden to have to deal with managing participants coming into the hearing um, and, you know, knowing how counsel are gonna manage documents and so on. Those are issues that a lot of arbitrators don't want to have to uh, deal with. And, you know, I think one of the things I've heard from arbitrators is I, I just don't wanna have to deal with the tech at all because I just wanna focus on the merits. And I think that's that's quite, quite reasonable uh, and understandable. Um, one of the things that I hope that, Um, the the order and the materials that have been circulated in connection with virtual hearings help people to do is to give basic understanding of platforms and the considerations that arise so that if a third-party service provider is involved you can ask as the tribunal or as counsel, ask reasonable questions about how they're setting things up and make choices informed choices in conjunction with the third-party service provider about how to proceed. So the the hearing that I just uh, did was conducted by uh, Arbitration Place, which is a, a hearing center out of Toronto. Um, they offer a sort of one-stop platform. They're they're not the only ones who do this. There are other providers um, as well. Um, but one of the differences I'll, I'll I'll say the tech is not so was not so difficult, and we didn't have a lot of technical difficulties. But with over thirty. 30- people joining each time, and a different cast of characters join each time. A very basic thing that you get with Zoom is you choose whether to have a little ding-dong go off every time someone joins the room or not. So a basic choice, having a third-party service provider, have a hearing technician who's the only one who hears the ding-dong. <laughs> Nobody else hears the ding-dong. It doesn't disrupt the proceedings, But they and then they're responsible for then telling me, and sending me a chat so that there's only a chat with the hearing technician and no one else in, in the hearing, so-and-so just joined or so-and-so disconnected and I can make a decision just as I would in ordinary circumstances if someone's fallen off the hearing, do I need to pause things and implement a backup or is it just someone you know going out to take a phone call? That That's just a, a basic example of one of the ways in which it makes um, a difference. And I'll perhaps stop there because, that's just sort of a, an overview, and people can start to talk about some of the more specific um, specific issues.
0: That was great. I'm watching the time. Um, the overview was fantastic. And the thing that uh, came across to me in reading Steps Order, which was sent around, there was a question, there was it was sent around with the materials, and um, it can be made available again, um, is the granularity with which you need to approach um, how Zoom is set up and preparing everybody for what's going to happen, having a test, Uh, of the system and all of that, and that's all dealt with very well. There are a couple of issues I want to make sure we touch upon. Time zones um, and Uh, cross-exam. Are you concerned, Andrew, uh, about uh, the possibility of having your uh, witnesses in Asia um, not being in the same time zone as everybody else? Uh, Is that something that uh, you've uh, given some consideration to? And also, uh, as a, uh, an advocate, um, are, are you thinking about how effective you can be uh, on cross-examination? If you could just, from the user's perspective, uh, adjust those two points. Because those sure. are sort of things we've all been hearing um, as arbitrators, I think. So
2: I haven't had to confront that specific circumstance yet, um, but it's inevitable. Um, and th- these are absolutely the sort of things um, that need to be uh, thought through. Um, John mentioned the the critical importance of of hearings, and and I agree entirely with him. And I think one of the reasons why um, hearings are so fundamental is the cross-examination of witnesses. Um, There's something about the discipline of standing up before a panel and saying something that really puts them to the test. Um, it's not the same as presenting a anodyne written statement. Um, there's just something qualitatively different about having to articulate it out loud in front of somebody who will be judging the credibility and accuracy of that statement. Um, and so, I, I think uh, cross examination is obviously um, one of the ways, the principal way in, in which those types of statements are, are tested. Uh, and, and so, the logistics and modalities for conducting effective cross examination in a virtual setting is something that requires a lot of forethought. And I think can only be really done and analyzed with, with the particularities of the specific cross examination in mind. You know, some cross examinations will be more document heavy. Um, than others and so you have to think through the logistics of you know how do you present the witness documents and guide them through documents and ask them questions in a way that also is effective um, from the standpoint of communicating um, the points you're trying to make to the tribunal um, so th- these are all really critical questions that uh, have to be analyzed um, uh, when determining the structure of the hearing
0: sure um, a question has come in. Um, if remote hearings become the new normal, wouldn't you be concerned about testimonies being coached or instructed live by others uh, through the use of teleprompters or other technological means? Uh, anyone want to uh, take a stab at that one?
4: I, I mean, I, th- I think it's a concern that gets, that gets raised um, frequently. Um, there are ways of, ways of dealing with it, and then I think there's a reality check. Um, I'll start with the reality check, which is I think concerns about um, people being coached or cheating or someone hiding in the room are um, are often overblown. Um, there's a there's an element of of trust in every proceeding. If if we're in, you know in an in person hearing and a witness asks for a break to go to the bathroom, they take their smartphone. Um, I could have told them not to confer during breaks, but they could be you know, texting someone for for answers um, before they come back. There are people who give significant looks, you know, from the other side of the room when someone's testifying. Some of those things go on in, in any in any event. The question of whether someone is gonna be hiding in the back that I can't see with a camera, um, the ways in which I, I think uh, we've developed protocols to deal with that are, are multifold. One is um, you, ask someone to specifically affirm at the beginning of a case that there's no one else there, that they won't be aided by any notes, to show that they've turned off a smartphone and have no other devices in the room, to possibly pan the camera, um, to see that there's nobody else there. And I think asking someone to specifically say, just like when you ask them, do you affirm that the testimony you're about to give shall be truthful, That there's a solemnity, solemnity, solemnity to that um, that is important, and I think that that, that has an, an, an impact on people's um, behavior. I do believe that. Uh, the cameras, I know also some of the third-party service providers are able to um, send you additional cameras and laptops so you could put one behind to have a full 360-degree view. Uh, the whole time. <laughs> That's so relaxing.
0: <bouncing. laughs>
4: And the, the traditional way, you know, I'd say the old school way, if you had to get someone to testify remotely, is you would have a lawyer um, or, you know, from the local, local council, wherever someone is located, sitting in the, in the back of, of the room and possibly having a witness opening, you know, a box of documents or a, um, you know, an envelope with, with the documents that are going to be used on cross-examination uh, beforehand so that they're not being coached. So I think there are a lot of those kinds of things that, that you can do to mitigate against the concern. Um, and in most cases, in most cases, I don't think it's something that we really have to be terribly worried about to put those cameras behind someone. I think that trust and and honesty are, are things we can expect of most of our participants. And, and that's a good thing.
0: I Thank you for that. And I agree, I, I think, um, the materials that the, uh, everybody received in connection with this program go through many of the concerns that have come up and that have been raised, um, and they've been the subject of uh, much discussion on webinars. You know, how do you deal with different time zones? You can shorten the hearing uh, and make sure that people are, or, or get some people in together in one place. Uh, if that makes sense. Uh, there are issues about witness positioning and making sure that they can be heard, all the technical issues. So, and I think the materials that we've circulated are really um, a great start to thinking about all those topics. As I said, the providers have been really, really helpful in, in dealing with these issues. But what I wanted to do um, in our remaining time, um, unless somebody uh, wanted to jump in uh, with uh, another uh, question from uh, the group, Um, or uh, another point about the remote hearings themselves. Let's talk a little bit about the future. Um, uh, John, what does the future look like? You don't have your crystal ball with you. I asked you to bring that um, to the proceedings here, but um, what kinds of disputes substantively do you think we will be seeing uh, and everyone's going to uh, jump in here, I think. What, what do we predict the types of disputes will look like? What are the most common? And is virtual arbitration here to stay? Even if we don't have to do it, are there benefits to it? Um, so just generally looking ahead from here.
3: Let, let me take the second one first. It, is virtual uh, arbitration here to, say it's to, to stay? You know, assuming we reach a day where uh, this is all over and we can live our lives as we used to. I don't think so. Um, you know, to me, the the, the virtual hearing uh, stands in relation to arbitration as the Zoom cocktail party stands to an, a cocktail party. Um, yeah, sure. You know, it's fine to see your friends over a Zoom cocktail party and share a drink virtually, but it's just not the same. And, um, you know, I, when you think about the expense of an arbitration, actually, the, the expense, the additional expense of holding a live hearing versus a virtual hearing, uh, I, I think is minimal. In fact, given all the work that goes into preparing for a virtual hearing, I, I wonder if it ends up being a wash. Sure, I, have, I would have to travel somewhere um, if I have a hearing, or lots, maybe everyone has to travel somewhere. But I think so much, from the standpoint of the lawyers, so much more time has to get put in preparing for a virtual hearing uh, for both the lawyers and the arbitrators. So, you know, I wonder if there really is a a cost saving to doing it that way. Um, And if there is, whether it's significant enough in the scheme of a case to to warrant it. Um, Let me just take this opportunity to, to Um, uh, uh, commend Steph on on the draft order she's prepared because it really is terrific. And, you know, if you're somebody like me who's technologically challenged, actually, it was really helpful to read it because it really did. uh, um, (laughs) Yeah, go ahead. It it really did, um, you know, help me with uh, the right questions to ask. Um, let me just move then quickly to to the first question. What type of disputes we will see? You know, I think one of the, and I'll, I'll be brief because I think other people have uh, thoughts on this too. Um, you know, I was recently appointed to a case that is a, a product, I can't obviously say too much about it, but it's a product of COVID-19. It's a, it's a force majeure case. Um, and and I think you know what, what has happened as a result of COVID is the result of the of COVID and the government restrictions that have been impo- imposed is that parties cannot fulfil some pre-existing contractual obligations. They're just unable to do them, or it's more difficult to do them. Um, and you know there are lots of doctrines um, that you can rely on to try and avoid uh, uh, contractual obligations. Um, uh, you know, depending on the governing law, depending on the facts of your case and depending on what your contract says. Um, there's probably more of these types of doctrines in civil law countries than we see in common law countries like England and the United States. Um, you know, in, in the United States, you have frustration of purpose, but it's hard to, it's hard to envisage a, a hypothetical whether the purpose of the contract was frustrated um, by COVID, maybe your performance was ma- rendered impossible, uh, but the, the, the purpose perhaps not so much. Um, uh, but uh, you know there are force majeure clauses in in uh, most contracts, and um, you know I think two questions arise in force majeure clauses. Um, one is does, is is COVID in some way covered? Does the force majeure clause Mention a pandemic. And if it doesn't, which I think, you know, I've seen very few that do, um, typically a force majeure clause would include government action of some type, and often it's government action that actually has has rendered things difficult. But assuming you you fall within a force majeure clause, um, the second question is, did the event you're relying on actually prevent or substantially impede or delay your performance? And, and that, that becomes a tricky question. Um, it, it depends on the facts. It's a factual question. You know, say you were getting a part from a factory in Wuhan and you for three months you couldn't get it, could you have gotten it from elsewhere recently or not? Um, and those are questions that I think, you know, are gonna be to turn on the facts and that I think, well, you know, as things go on, we're going to have to grapple with it. Let me stop there.
0: Sure. Um, Mark, uh...
1: So briefly, because I know our time is short. First, I, I also have a COVID force majeure matter, and I think John's, John's comments are, are, are very correct. These are, are very factual, and the contracts may allocate the risks in different ways. There's been a widely publicized dispute over the sale of the Victoria's Secrets stores where the force majeure clause did have a carve out for pandemics or did include pandemic it carved out pandemics uh and then the buyer argued that there'd been a material adverse change in the operation of the business uh because the stores were closed uh that all ended up going no place Uh, i think the the other question is perhaps more interesting and i start with uh going back to the wisdom of Gloria Steinem uh you may not like the future but the future's coming anyway (laughs) Uh, And I do think the future is going to look different, and I actually quite like the future. Um, I rarely disagree with John, but I think on this one, my my view is a slight tweak of that. I think there will be a reversion to the mean in, in many respects, and there are all the benefits we've talked about of live hearings, but I think some trends will accelerate. I had a hearing last year Uh, where a witness, a bookkeeper, flew in from Thailand to give five minutes of testimony essentially to authenticate the accounting books of one of the parties. I don't think it was very nice for her to get a trip to New York City which probably would not otherwise have occurred in her life Uh, but I don't think that's going to happen in the future. People talk about the carbon footprint of flying 40 people to a hearing in London Uh, Does that need to happen? I do definitely think we're going to see hybrid proceedings uh, where there will be a convening, uh, but some witnesses may testify virtually. Um, I think there may be some more openness to the kinds of alternative processes that we've talked about, uh, more attention to case management. Those are all trends that were happening. I, I do think this experience is accelerating trends uh, to some degree in a good way, in the sense that uh, it's accelerating uh, tr- trends because people are finding that it works and they can be comfortable. Right. Uh, so that's my view of the future, which is a fairly bright view.
0: And certainly I think, you know, I want to make sure we mentioned the Singapore convention, um, which, uh, it, in 2019, there are 46 countries that are signatories to that. Uh, it, uh, the signatories agree to um, enforce um, mediation settlement agreements, in essence. I'm crunching a lot into one sentence. Uh, just wanna make sure everyone's aware of that because I think apropos of what Andrew and Mark were talking about earlier in terms of settlements and mediations, that, that might be an accelerated trend too. But Steph, what's your view? Are virtual arbitrations here at STAY and then what kinds of disputes are we seeing?
4: Well, I mean, I agree with, with, with what both John and Mark have just said. I guess I'll just add two things. One is I think we will see um, initial case management conferences and status conferences happening by video conference much more frequently. That's something that Andrew started off, um, you know, reminding us that that happens by audio conference all the time. Well, I think as people have gotten more used to the technology and familiar with uh, with different platforms. that that's one of the areas where people see the advantages and say, it's it's nice to see one's, someone's face for the first time and to establish those connections and relationships when we're already dealing with things remotely. So that for sure, I think is uh, is here to stay. Um, I think the second thing, one of the, the other things that we're going to see is um, hopefully, I think more paperless hearings, less reliance on on paper overall. We've seen um, a huge digitalization of the arbitration process generally. That's one of the things that uh, I know drove uh, interest that that Mark and I share in cybersecurity, attention to that issue. But I think, you know, as people have been forced to work at home um, and don't have all of their office resources, have been trying to figure out how you share documents with, uh, you know, exhibits with witnesses online, that they're becoming much more familiar with and used to dealing with things electronically, using their tablets to mark up documents, which they may not have done before. And I think those are some of the things that are gonna stick with us. And and we start to realize it's not as scary using some of the technology, as long as we plan for it, practice with it, and pay attention to the security.
0: Yep, I I mean, I think that um, the Right now, parties are renegotiating contracts and milestones um, and avoiding uh, disputes. This is what I'm hearing from my general counsel colleagues and others, but there is going to come a point where people's patience is is worn thin and all of these questions that we've been discussing during this program are are gonna come to the fore and and I agree, I, I don't think the world will revert entirely to the mean, but Andrew, you're the user, you're the one hiring uh, the arbitrators. <laughs> um, what, do, what do you think um, about virtual arbitration and whether it's here to stay and how comfortable do you feel about that world? I think we all agree that a hearing is so critical in an international arbitration context.
2: I, I agree with Stephanie's comment that we're, we're very likely to see um, the types of conferences that would ordinarily have been done through audio means Um, become done via Zoom, which I think is a positive development. I I think there really is a benefit to be able to, you know, see somebody's facial expressions um, as they react to what you're saying and what the other side is saying. Um, And so I think that's a very positive development. I I think we're going to see a temptation uh, to have more virtual hearings, even after, you know, fingers crossed the pandemic abates or, or even ends. Um, I I think that temptation is real. I think that's a temptation that should be resisted in appropriate circumstances. There may be cases where it does make sense to have a virtual hearing, but I I think something fundamental and and important about arbitration would be lost if if, um, that temptation is succumbed to um, too often.
0: Well, um, I think we've come to the end of our time. There are so many things to talk about. Like I said, we skipped over some things because the materials that were uh, distributed go into great detail about some of the ins and outs. And if you have questions, I'm sure our panelists would be happy to um, address them. Um, there is a final question here, which I just want to uh, raise because it's an interesting one and we that perhaps it's our next webinar. Have you experienced cultural communication barriers and in international arbitration pre and post COVID-19? I think the answer uh, may be yes. It's a wonderful question. Um, but uh, perhaps in, in the virtual world, uh, we can work on that too as well as making sure that um, everyone is appropriately introduced and uh, that people do not disappear from the screen, etc. So thank you so much, uh, John and Mark and Steph and Andrew. Uh, this has been a wonderful discussion. I really appreciate you appearing virtually in Boston. I wish I could give you a lobster roll, as we say, lobster roll. Uh, and. Um, I did not force everybody to uh, pronounce arbitrator, arbitrator as we do up here, uh, but uh, here we are virtually in Boston. Thank you very much for your time and uh, preparation. And I'm sure uh, that uh, our participants who have stayed on the line uh, have uh, gotten quite a, a bit out of it. And if I get questions, I'll uh, distribute them to you. All right, Steve, you're back with us.
3: Thank you, Connor. Thank you, Connor.
0: You're welcome. Up. Oh. I, I just
3: hear. want to thank the uh, panelists and you, and everyone who participated and watched the webinar, and I just want to let all participants know that within a few days, you'll all receive a recording of the webinar, and the materials will be redistributed again for anyone who missed out on that first round of emails. Um, thank you, everyone.
0: Thank you very much. Have a great day. Thank you.